You know, to me, if it's a pure placebo and that's it, it's not something our group will do because it's not benefiting the owners. It's only benefiting the company. And I just ethically, personally, have issues with that. Welcome to Dog Cancer Answers, where we help you help your dog with cancer. Here's your host, James Jacobson. Hello, friend. Today's episode is about one of those rare topics in dog cancer that is truly a win-win and that is clinical trials. Researchers win because they learn more about a drug or therapy, and we win because we can get discounted and sometimes free veterinary care. And our dogs win because they get access to cutting edge treatments before they're available to the general market. To tell us more about the ins and outs of clinical trials for dog cancer, we are joined by Dr. Craig Clifford. Dr. Clifford is a boarded oncologist who loves these studies. He loves them so much that he created a hybrid private practice so that he could both provide standard veterinary care and he could participate in lots of clinical trials. Dr. Clifford, welcome. At this point, you have been involved in, I don't know, like 15 or actually, how many are you working on now? Uh, Currently, due to COVID, our numbers got cut down. We probably only have about five ongoing clinical trials, but we have another five or six that are in the works. So COVID definitely put a uh, a stop to it only because a lot of times clinical trials involve sponsors coming in and moderators coming in to check out supply and stuff like that. And since we couldn't let people in the hospital, hmm. clearly we couldn't allow the the clinical trials to go on. So we had a almost a year hiatus, unfortunately, as a result of it. But things are moving forward now, so I'm pleased. So what I wanted to discuss in today's episode is if you have a dog with cancer or pretty much any other type of serious illness and you're looking for like all sorts of things to do, one of the things that often people suggest is, well, maybe you should get a clinical trial. What are the things that folks should think about when they think about enrolling their dog in a clinical trial? Yeah, that's a great question. So I I think the first and foremost, if an owner is looking to get all the information they possibly can, uh, the AVMA does have a clinical trial database. So you literally type in AVMA, American Veterinary Medical Association, and clinical trial database. It pops up. It's not perfectly user-friendly, but it will list cat or dog, and it'll list the specific disease type. So you can really not just say cancer, but if your dog has, say, for instance, lymphoma, you can search under lymphoma clinical trials and then see what is in the nearby area. Mm -hmm. And this is also true even for non-cancer diseases, diabetes, Cushing's disease, things like that. So that's the first step. And in a typical year, I know we are not in a typical year, even now in 2022, but in a typical year, how many Uh, clinical trials are being done across the United States? Oh, several hundred usually. Yeah. Okay. Between university, private practice, and then industry-sponsored trials, usually there are several. And is the great majority of those in oncology? No, they vary. I think oncology probably leads the field. Internal medicine is probably pretty close, if not Mm -hmm. tied with it, only because they have so many smaller trials that are going. So you know, that's what the owner needs to then look at. You know, once they've seen the possibility for a trial, to me, the next thing that needs to be looked at is the funding of it, Mm -hmm. you know, and this is where, you know, as we had mentioned in our last podcast, that it's very, um, for me, it's a great thing when I have owners that have limited financial means that I can offer a fully funded trial. So that's the other thing the owner needs to look at. Is it fully funded 
or will they have to pay some of it? And if so, how much? Because that may influence whether they can go forward with it. Got it. Okay, so once they've checked the AVMA site and found a trial that may have a connection with you know, what their dog is going through and what their diagnosis is. And they can find out the little bit about the financial component of it, which is like, am I going to be shelling out money or is this fully funded? And when it's funded, it's usually funded by either a pharmaceutical company or a university or who is actually doing the funding. Or a grant. Um, It may be a a grant grant that an investigator had put in Mm -hmm. and that's covering it. But usually most of the ones that we do, we're either partnering with the university or it's sponsor-driven. Say we have a drug that needs to get fully approved in order to be out there and sold. Mm -hmm. And the goal is to run the trial. It's called a pivotal trial. And that's the data from that gets presented to the FDA in order to then have the drug out there. So maybe this is a good time to talk about the different types of trials. You mentioned pivotal trial. How many different types of clinical trials are there? Well, I mean, most of the trials are called prospective clinical trials, where basically we're enrolling patients, whether it's for a new diagnostic or for a new therapy. And prospective means we're we're doing it live at one time and bringing it forward. There are what are called retrospective studies, but those are not clinical trials. Retrospective is a bunch of clinicians look at cancer A that was treated with drug B and how did all of our cases do? And we put our data together and come up with an answer that's not quite as strong as a prospective trial, because a prospective trial, everyone gets the exact same thing. So there are no biases, there's no differences, everyone fits and they get put into it. Is that what they consider the gold standard when they talk about- You got it. Placebo-controlled multi-university or multi-center. You got it. And generally, and that brings up a great point you brought up is placebo-controlled, because in general, when a person is looking at it, if it is a placebo-controlled type of study, They really need to look at that because they need to understand that there is a percentage chance that they may get the placebo. So for our group, we will only enroll in placebo-based trials if it has what's called a quick trip, uh, tripwire, meaning if the case progresses within two days, they can jump off and then the owners will receive some monetary compensation to attain the standard of care. Or it may be the trial then allows them to cross over and receive the drug in question. Mm. You know, to me, if it's a pure placebo and that's it, it's not something our group will do because it's not benefiting the owners. It's only benefiting the company. And I just ethically, personally, have issues with that. So that's a thing to be looking out for is a quote-unquote quick tripwire. And is that a common parlance? Is that that commonly? You got it. You got it. Just something that if my pet gets placebo Mm -hmm. and I fail, can I A, cross over to the other group, or do I receive some type of compensation that I can undergo standard of care? Because then it's easy to look at the owner and say, look, no matter what, you're getting the drug, or no matter what, you're getting standard of care. So there's no reason that you shouldn't want to enroll in this. If it's truly just placebo, then I agree with you 100%. You know, then it's concerning because I may be doing a disservice to that patient. So to get the gold standard, to have the placebo control, it needn't be for the full duration. It could be for a short thing and then have one of those tripwires. Yep. As long as you're able to have a tripwire that shows there's progression and then those numbers can be associated with the placebo, then they can move on to something else. This concept of a tripwire is fascinating. Is this something that is created in the clinical study design. Yep. And so there's obviously financial components to it because it's going to cost more than if there wasn't a tripwire. And you say those are the only ones that you do at your practice. Exactly. Easier to enroll. 
Are most veterinary oncology studies, do they have a tripwire? Most will allow a crossover. When investigators or a company is putting together a study, they take that into account because they know, how am I going to enroll X number of patients if many of them may look at it and be like, there may not be a benefit to me because if I end up in the placebo group, I'm not getting anything. Okay. So, you know, to me, I think most of the groups will tend to put something like that into it. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. So you, you found the study, you figured out the financial components, you hopefully have found a study with the tripwire. What are some other considerations? I mean, the next step is where are they located? So is it something that you're able to get to? Mm. And then setting up a, you know, a consult to see if your pet is eligible, because oftentimes diagnostics will need to be done to see if they're eligible. So there is a chance that the owner may make a, you know, 200 mile drive to enroll in a clinical trial only to find out that they're not eligible. What is the furthest you've seen someone travel to to participate in a clinical trial? We had someone come down from Canada for a clinical trial that we were doing. So they were driving the dog eight to 10 hours um, in order to be able to do it. But that brings up a point too, because usually when we're putting these clinical trials together and we come up with what we call an owner consent, we also have to make sure the owner can come, mm-hmm. you know, that they can make all of them. Because if an owner is coming from a distance such as that, now it was during the summer, so not an issue, but you can imagine, you know, we were talking about the lovely winter we could be having. You can imagine Canada to try to get out and drive eight hours is a whole lot different than coming from Canada during the summer. So, you know, that plays a role because if the patient can't stay on schedule or misses appointments, now their data loses its validity mm. and that doesn't help anyone, you know? And so, okay, so, and obviously that was probably pre-COVID in terms of crossing international. Yeah, yes, it uh, was. So what other things would one want to consider if you're looking at it? You can Other things would be looking at, for the clinical trial, looking at the, the product itself. Is there any data for it? Mm-hmm. Is this the first trial with it? Mm-hmm. Or do we have other data to show that it's safe and that it has some efficacy? Mm-hmm. Meaning, do I have a chance that I could help my pet being part of this clinical trial? Or am I solely entering it because I don't have the finances and I want to do something? And where can you get that safety and efficacy data A lot of times it'll be when you look at the trial itself in the overview of it, they will describe the product and describe any data that may have been done beforehand. And also during, sometimes it's going to come from the the appointment Mm -hmm. where you're meeting one of the investigators and they're describing it with you. Because oftentimes when you go on the clinical trial database, it's like three paragraphs of information and that's it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they can't put too much in that section. So a lot of it would be calling to ask questions beforehand or asking those questions during the screening visit. Well, as you talk about questions to ask either beforehand or or during the screening, what are some other things that you wish more clients who are considering enrolling asked first? Medications that they're on, you know, that could prevent them from being on the clinical trial. So we do know that a lot of times many owners are giving over-the-counter or alternative medicines. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, some of those may prevent the pet from being part of the clinical trial. And when you say alternative medicines, that includes supplements? Mm -hmm. Okay. And and holistic meds. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, some of these, we don't know if they have efficacy. We don't know if they could make it harder for the drug to work. And we don't know if they could give us a better result or a worse result or more side effects. So as you can imagine, anytime you have a clinical trial, you want it to be as clean as possible and it may be they need a washout before they can enroll. You want to remove all the variables so that you can actually you got test if, if the drug is having an effect. Mm-hmm. What risks are there to the dog? 
Again, that's where I think the clinical investigator needs to talk with the owner because usually we'll put those in there that there is a risk with this product of potential hospitalization or theoretically, if it is a drug, could it be something that could cause death? Although it's not anticipated, you know, it depends upon what the trial is. So in a pivotal trial, we already know the dose and what we're doing is treating a large number of patients. Early on, you have trials where you're trying to find the dose. So what happens is we start very low Mm -hmm. and then we raise it up and we usually do it in cohorts of three dogs. And if they tolerate it, we keep going up and up and up. So the concern, of course, is we're eventually going to hit a dose that is toxic. And is that possible that that could lead to, you know, adverse events to the pet or being hospitalized, et cetera? So I think understanding the trial, where the drug is in its development, am I very early on and we have hardly any data and we're just trying to use this to figure out the dose of the drug? Or do we have a whole bunch of data and I know how the drug does and I'm just going to get the drug as part of this pivotal trial, which are the best ones because you already know everything about it. And usually they have the best funding. Got it. Okay. So the, f- the first one that you talked about, which I believe is called dose escalation studies, right? Yep. And those are sometimes, they're done very early on in the process. And that's where people can get a little nervous because there really will be adverse events eventually, because that's the idea of what dose escalation is, right? Exactly. The, the challenge with those is the patients who enroll early are probably getting too low of a dose, Mm. and the patients who enroll late theoretically could be getting a higher-end dose. And how candid are the investigators, if you've listened to this episode and and understand, like, you know, where you'd want to be if you are entering in the dose escalation study, how candid are the investigators? I mean, in general, most places that are doing clinical trials are going to be very candid about everything because the last thing we want is an owner that bags out and we lose all the data or an owner then, you know, isn't happy with how things went and decides to, you know, vent on social media, (laughs) all of those things can negatively, you know, influence the trial itself. So we're going to be as honest as possible to let them know the pros and cons. So, you know, traditionally for me, I'll always talk about standard of care first, even if an owner is coming for the trial, if I have an osteosarcoma, I'm going to do the whole spiel for what is standard of care Mm -hmm. and then talk about the clinical trial. I would never talk about a clinical trial first. Okay. So how do the drug makers and the investigators do the enrollment process? Like, I think enrollment is the term that is used. Mm -hmm. What are some typical ways that they, that they enroll candidates for these studies? Oh, you mean like marketing wise? Marketing wise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly the clinical trial database is wonderful because you know, that goes literally across the entire world, theoretically. Mm-hmm. We'll do a lot of local marketing to all of our primary care doctors. We'll do email blasts. We'll put things on our website. And then the other thing that we have done, which has been incredibly helpful, is if we have a, a trial that we really are looking for a good number of cases, we'll put a little blurb on it on the bottom of each discharge and referral letter. That may be getting a letter from the dermatologist, and on the bottom, it talks about a clinical trial. Mm. Because the problem we found with mailers or a blast is everybody looks at it for a second, then they put the piece of paper away, which we all do. I mean, I don't keep stuff on my desk, you know, but with this, they're consistently getting hit with it. Mm -hmm. And we have found that that has helped our numbers. Okay. So is that sometimes a challenge to find uh, suitable candidates for these studies? Yeah, it depends upon the clinical trial, but some studies are very, very specific and sometimes patients don't meet the criteria. And then we've often found, we don't know why this is, but it's a running joke amongst clinical trial people is that, 
you know, you'll be, say you're doing, you're going to do a melanoma trial. You're seeing tons of melanomas. You're super excited. I have so many cases I'm going to be able to help. You start the trial and it's crickets, you know, and it's like, it's like they all went away <laughs> for about, you know, a couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden it kind of, it clicks in, but invariably it always happens that you overestimate the number of cases you think you're going to get. We're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more insight on clinical trials for dog cancer. And now, a message from your dog. Oh, every day with you is like a day at the beach, and I want as many beach days as possible. Oh, I want to run. I want to sniff. Ooh, I want to find a good stick to carry. Oh, I want to roll in the grass. Oh, and warm my belly in the sun. Oh, I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want ever pop. The green, glassy beef liver smell wakes my senses. Oh, you may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy. It infuses any food you give me with healthy life vibrancy. Oh, I can feel it. Ever pop traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. I'm so grateful to be your dog and for the Everpop you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpop, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpop is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpop Club at everpupclub.com where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. If your dog has cancer, you need to get a copy of the best-selling animal health book, The Dog Cancer Survival Guide. Because no matter what you've heard, there are always steps that you can take to help your dog fight and maybe even beat cancer. At nearly 500 pages, this comprehensive guide is your complete reference for practical, evidence-based strategies that can optimize the life quality and longevity of your dog. It's written by two of the most respected names in dog cancer, full-spectrum veterinarian Damian Dressler and veterinary oncologist Susan Ettinger. With the Dog Cancer Survival Guide, you'll learn everything that you need to know about conventional treatments, surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation, including how to reduce their side effects. You'll also discover the most effective non-conventional options, including nutraceuticals and supplements and diet, as well as mind-body medicine. What I love most about this book, which I've used with my own dog, Kanga, when she was diagnosed with cancer, is how to analyze the options and develop a specific plan for your own dog based on your dog's type of cancer and your dog's age, your financial budget, as well as your personality. You can get the Dog Cancer Survival Guide wherever books are sold, but if you get it direct from the publisher, you will save 10% when you use the offer code, especially for listeners of this podcast. Just go to dogcancerbook.com, and when you check out, use the promo code PODCAST, and you will save 10%. The website again, dogcancerbook.com, and use the promo code PODCAST to save 10%. 
I want to let you know about an important newsletter. It's called Dog Cancer News. Now, with a name like that, it is not for everyone. But if your dog has cancer, you will want to subscribe. That's because every issue features articles that will be helpful, such as low-carb dog cancer diet recipes, new clinical trials, financial resources to help pay for cancer care, information on supplements, and lots of other helpful info that your veterinarian may not know or have the time to share with you. Also, when you subscribe to Dog Cancer News, you will get a weekly update on the topics covered on this podcast, along with links and resources. So how much does Dog Cancer News cost? Well, today, you can subscribe for free. It's our gift. For a limited time, you can get a full year's subscription for free. No strings attached. Just go to this website to sign up for the newsletter now, dogcancernews.com. It takes less than 10 seconds to subscribe, and it is totally free. Do it now at dogcancernews.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we are back. So obviously science with a capital S has been in the news a lot recently over the last few years. Have you noticed that there is a greater appreciation? Are you hopeful in terms of seeing that people are more interested in science and participating in clinical trials or or the opposite? No, it's definitely been that. I've been very blown away by the the owners that we have for our clinical trials. Maybe we've just been lucky in how we've done it, mm-hmm. but they are the owners that are the most thankful because many of them may be entering because they don't have the financial means. And, you know, the most gratifying thing is we've had some cases that have jumped from trial to trial. And the owner says, my dog's still here because of you, you know, and it, they didn't have the money to afford. The pet would have been put to sleep in a short period of time. So to me, I think many owners are are looking for something else, you know, besides standard of care or something new. And, and many come in with that. And sometimes even when they come in with the idea, I want to do the trial, we still go through the standard of care. And many of them may decide upon the standard of care when they hear more information about the trial. And that's where the clinician needs to be honest about it. Is there a story or two that really stands out in your memory? Having done so many. I just, I mean, again, I remember I have at least two or three dogs that I know had gone through multiple lymphoma trials that helped pay for all of their staging, for their treatment. Then they received money for standard of care. When the dog eventually failed, they were able to then go back into another clinical trial. So the owner had no problem with it. It was a wonderful owner. So it was really rewarding that this owner just touted trials and said, oh my God, they're the greatest thing in the world. You know, it's it saved my dog. 
Now, not all veterinary oncologists participate in clinical trials. Why do you? Oh, I mean, I love it. As I said, I think in our our first chat we had, you know, I am um, uh, somewhat of an academic at heart in that, mm-hmm. you know, I have an academic mentality on some level, but I love being in private practice. So, you know, what I tried to create was a hybrid, you know, a way that I can do many of the things that they do in academia, publishing, clinical trials, lecturing, et cetera, but do it in a private practice setting. And um, that has worked out very well. And there are a number of contract research organizations that only work with private practice, not necessarily university. So that has helped too. We're part of several networks. So they do all the heavy lifting. We're part of their network and they come to us and say, hey, we got this trial. Here's the deal. Do you want to be in? Yes or no. And that's wonderful because it's a lot less work for us because they've worked with the company, ironed out all the details for the trial and everything, come up with a budget. And all we have to do is say yes. So from an end user's perspective, do you think that it makes a difference whether you're going to a big veterinary university or going into a small clinic for participating in these trials? I think it varies. You have to, I think you have to just look at the trial itself and compare them individually as to what they're doing. But oftentimes the same trial may be run in private practice and university. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of the time you'll see that where they're both being involved. But there are some trials that are truly more university, and those are the ones that are much more intensive, labor-intensive, and it's because the university has the infrastructure for it. Mm-hmm. You know, running trials in practice is not easy. It took me a long time of banging my head against the wall because where I initially worked, you know, the originally the owner didn't foresee any benefit to them. And then we started doing them and saw the PR that came associated with mm. it and also saw that it brought in revenue. And all of a sudden, why aren't we doing more clinical trials, you know? I'm like, because they're hard, you know, because they require more work (laughs) than just seeing normal patients. So there is a lot more to them. So I think it has to be the right individual Mm -hmm. and you have to be in the right hospital that has the infrastructure for you to do it. You know, oftentimes it's important to have a clinical trial nurse. All of my nurses are involved in them, but usually one will be the main person for each study. And it's great because they literally become vested and they take ownership of the trial. Because you were saying that, I mean, it's way more difficult, more time consuming, I guess, than just seeing patients because you then have to chronicle what's going on. And is that where the the nurse fits in? Yep. Yep. Plus there's things that only the doctor can fill in. So usually there's two databases. You have your own medical database that you, when you see a case, you fill in. Mm -hmm. And then usually for each study, there's an electronic database that you have to log in separately. Mm. So it is double the amount of time to do them. Got it. And then in terms of, you said that, you know, your practice owner kind of said, hey, this kind of makes sense because they are receiving the extra fees in terms of services as well as as your time. So it can be worth it for a small practice. Exactly. And then we've also found that many of the clinical trial owners, you know, it may have been they were in a, a tough spot financially. Mm-hmm. And once the trial ends and say the patient needs further therapy, now they're willing to do it. So it's not like it's taking away from, you know, a case that we would have treated normally per se. Oftentimes they're coming specifically for the trial. So to me, it's additional cases, not addition by subtraction. So in addition to helping dogs with cancer, is there some benefit to people? Yeah. As we know, many of the cancers that we have in veterinary medicine are translational models for that in people. So the disease is very similar between the two species. So there are probably more university trials that are a trial under that auspice, you know, looking at disease X, which is also in people and comparing a new product. And it may be that product is designed to go to people 
and it's being done mainly in dogs to learn more information about it. So sometimes we've worked with products that were not designed to go to dogs. They were designed to go further on the physician-based side. Now, let's talk a little bit more about that, because I know that the National Cancer Institute has this comparative oncology program. Do results from clinical trials on dogs make it into that, or do you know? Yep, yep. Oftentimes, National Cancer Institute has the you know the clinical oncology group that they have of multiple universities, and they basically run translational trials where the data from that is designed to benefit not only dogs or cats, Mm -hmm. but then also designed to benefit people. So many of the trials they run are designed specifically to be translational models. Now, in terms of the process and in terms of the things that are probably not often spoken of, a necropsy is sometimes often performed in these trials? I think it depends upon the clinical trial. You know, usually the ones that we'll be involved in, we try to make sure it's not something that is forced on an owner. Because the last thing you want is, you know, God forbid something happens and they're far away and they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So, But we do tell them if something unexpected were to happen and God forbid a patient passed during a trial and we don't know why and we need to find out more information, that may be something. But most trials will give the owner the out for that. So it's not required and it's not that common. I've never been in a trial where it is has to be required because then you're right. That's a tough sell mm-hmm. for some people, you know, even if they're getting a, you know, a, a free cremation with it, it's not what they want. And it's also scary because why are you bringing this up? You know, we always have to bring that up and it's in our owner consent mm-hmm. that something can happen. But we tell them, look, we just have to mention this. We don't foresee it. I mean, even in trials that we're doing, just blood dog trials, we list like if the patient were to pass or something. And we tell them clearly we don't think that. It's just the standard part of all informed consents. Okay. So the lawyers have spent a lot of time figuring out all the things that <laughs> that, need, that could possibly go wrong and creating indemnifications. Is it basically boilerplate in air quotes or are there things that one should really look at and consider as they review the consent? I mean, I, again, I think it goes back to where is the drug in its history? Mm-hmm. So are we very early on where we're still learning a lot and we don't know a lot about the drug, thereby the risk of an adverse event could be higher? Mm-hmm. Or are we in the process of, as we mentioned, the pivotal trial where this data is going to allow the drug to be sold? Mm-hmm. That's much farther along. So we know a lot of information about the drug. And that's an easier sell. Those are much easier cells. And when you look back on all the trials that you've been involved with, is there one that sticks out as like, I really liked that one. That was kind of cool. Um, I would say there was an interesting one we were doing with a, a particular bacteria that could grow inside an anaerobic environment, meaning tumors where there's not a lot of oxygen. And um, this was a pretty fast growing bacteria where you know, dogs would be injected and all of a sudden, you know, and and they were designed to have surgery done on it, but they ended up having surgery almost every dog within like a day or two because it grew so fast inside the tumors that we needed to jump to surgery quickly. So that was an interesting study. And it was a little little scary at first, um, I got to be honest, to see these patients coming back and they needed emergency surgery to have it because the agent works so well. Mm. Wow. So if you had a dog with cancer, right, is there any situation in which you would not agree to do a clinical trial 
for my own dog, I mean, certainly if it's a placebo based and there's no benefit to them, okay. not something I would do, especially if there was very little data for it. Yeah. Um, it's not something that I would push. Okay. That would be the big red flag for you. Yep. Yep. The other point to bring up was when you talked about screening, certainly we screen the patient, but we also screen our owners because, you know, we definitely have some owners that are not the best for clinical trials, you know? How's that? Maybe an owner that's notoriously late an owner that misses a lot of appointments or, you know, what some owners don't realize is as part of many of the trials, they often have a diary they need to keep. Mm. And anything they put in that diary can be considered an adverse event. An adverse event is anything that is different. So I've literally had to write down an adverse event that they took the dog to Philadelphia and the dog did not like Philadelphia. So I literally had to put that as an adverse event. The city of brotherly love is an adverse event for this one drug. That's funny. Yes. Hopefully yes. It, it, it didn't affect the results of the trial too much. Well, we had to have a long talk with the owner that this is what the diary is for. Those superfluous things do not go in the diary. So a lot of this fits in the in the term compliance, right? Is this sort of compliance? So you're looking for an owner who is going to be compliant and agree to what is part of the process in terms of the scientific discovery. Is that kind of a learning challenge for some people to to kind of you know realize that they are in fact a participant themselves? by keeping the journal and, and making sure the dog is getting the drug, if there's a drug or something like that, that they have to administer at home on a certain time? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we spend a lot of time, uh, the clinician and the nurse going through it with the owner mm -hmm. to let them know what they need to do. Because, you know, some of the cases, some of the studies we've done, everything was electronic, including the diary. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, there are still some elderly people that have, don't have email and don't have internet. Mm -hmm. And we were like, you're probably not a good person for this clinical trial because it involves using the web. Got it. Well, Craig Clifford, thank you so much. Is there any final thoughts that you'd want to share with us about clinical trials? No, I think the most important thing is doing your homework. So, you know, certainly looking at the AVMA clinical trial database, I would certainly recommend doing. The other thing is nearby universities or referral clinics asking or looking on their websites to see what clinical trials they do. If it is a corporate-owned clinic, then you can go to their main website. Like for Mars, you have VCA and Blue Pearl. You know, you can look at both of them. Ethos is another one. So all of these corporates all have their own clinical trials that they're doing. So you can look under AVMA or look under the individual. So the owner has to do their homework is what I'd recommend, certainly beforehand. But they're there and they're designed to help. And to help you do your homework, we will put a link a lot of links in our show notes and on our website at dogcanceranswers.com where you can find resources if you're hunting down a clinical trial for your dog. Dr. Craig Clifford, thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate it. And I would like to thank you, listener, for tuning in and joining us today on Dog Cancer Answers. Please check out the show notes for all the links and resources that were mentioned by Dr. Clifford. You can find those either in the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or on our website at dogcanceranswers.com. And if your dog has been enrolled in a clinical trial, we invite you to tell us about your experiences. You can do that by calling our listener line if you have a question. That listener line number is 
808-868-3200. Again, 808-868-3200. And it is available 24-7. We might feature your experience or your question about your dog on a future episode of Dog Cancer Answers. We also encourage you to join us in our Facebook group. And you can find that at dogcancersupport.com. Dogcancersupport.com is a quick link to our Facebook group. It is a vibrant community of dog lovers, just like you, sharing their experiences with dog cancer. Well, that is all for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you'll tell a friend about it and maybe even tell your veterinarian about Dog Cancer Answers. I'd like to thank you for listening. And on behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, I'd like to wish you and your dog a very warm aloha. Thank you for listening to Dog Cancer Answers. If you'd like to connect, please visit our website at dogcanceranswers.com or call our listener line at 808-868-3200. And here's a friendly reminder that you probably already know. This podcast is provided for informational and educational purposes only. It's not meant to take the place of the advice you receive from your dog's veterinarian. Only veterinarians who examine your dog can give you veterinary advice or diagnose your dog's medical condition. Your reliance on the information you hear on this podcast is solely at your own risk. If your dog has a specific health problem, contact your veterinarian. Also, please keep in mind that veterinary information can change rapidly. Therefore, some information may be out of date. Dog Cancer Answers is a presentation of Maui Media in association with Dog Podcast Network. 